You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in we. episode four. Yeah. Oh, he's so awesome. America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, February 2nd. 2022 people i hope everybody's doing well i hope everybody is having a great uh groundhog's day i almost said valentine's day that's a couple weeks from now hope everyone's having a great groundhog's day and i hope everybody is ready for a new episode of the air tour sports podcast loaded show for you guys and girls today so much to discuss so much to get into don't want to waste too much time here off the top but here is the rundown of today's show caleb williams has finally made his college decision going to talk a lot about that what it means for usc the pac-12 all that good stuff from there, talk a little Jim Harbaugh. By the time you guys and girls listen to this show, Jim Harbaugh may be the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. We will talk a little Tom Brady. Obviously, at this point, I don't know what there is for me to add to the conversation, but it isn't often that we see the greatest player in the history of team sports retire, so we'll discuss that. Then we'll take a quick break, come back with what should be a very fun guest that I think you guys will enjoy, college football-related, Danny Werfel. Former Heisman Trophy winner, played at Florida, fun and gun, Steve Spurrier. Danny Werfel joins the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast for what I think you will enjoy as a very fun interview with the former Heisman Trophy winner. And then we will wrap the show talking a little college hoops. Obviously, the big story coming out of the last couple days, Texas Tech hosting Texas. Chris Beard returns to Lubbock, and it was a madhouse in Lubbock, Texas on Tuesday night. With that said, though, let's get to... The topic of the day. And the topic of the day is, have you ever seen that meme on social media? This is not the topic of the day, but have you ever seen the meme on social media? Rose, Titanic, retelling the story. And she goes, it's been 84 long years. Well, that's how I feel about the Caleb Williams transfer portal recruitment. Caleb Williams enters the portal over a month ago at this point. We think he's going to USC. Jackson Dart enters the portal. He visits USC. And then another week goes by, and then another week goes by, and then another week goes by, and we're wondering what the heck is going on. Is he really going to go to LSU? Is he really going to go to Wisconsin? Is there some sort of mystery school that we're not aware of? And then on Tuesday, out of nowhere, the bombshell drops. Caleb Williams has, in fact, committed, and he commits to, drumroll please, fight on to victory. 
fight on for all to see. That's right, Caleb Williams officially headed to USC. So a month after he entered the portal, a month after we all assumed that he was headed to USC, it becomes official. Caleb Williams headed to USC. I cannot tell you how big this is for not only the Pac-12, but for USC college football as a whole. So now that it's official, now that Caleb Williams is officially a Trojan, he's going to be leading the band with the, the, the sword in his hand. Let's discuss and let's talk about why this is so big and why this is so important. First of all, to even go back to the recruitment for half a second as it was, first of all, I give Caleb Williams and his family a ton of credit, right? They said from the beginning that they were going to do two things. They were going to take their time with the process, and they were going to ultimately pick the school that puts Caleb Williams in the best position to do what their stated goal has been all along, which is to be the number one pick in the 2024 NFL draft. So not this one coming up, not next one, but the one after. That was the number one stated goal. They're going to take their time, they're going to do what's right for the kid, and they're going to take the, the, the spot that puts him in the best position to be that number one overall pick in 2024. And so now that we live in this, not only the transfer portal world, but this NIL era world, it would have been easy to seriously consider LSU, and it's no disrespect to Brian Kelly and the, you know, the, 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 the bumping and grinding that Brian Kelly's doing down there in the bayou, because I think Brian Kelly's going to be really good at LSU. I'm sure there were other schools coming in with crazy NIL offers, and I'm not going to sit here and be naive and assume that there's nothing on the table in terms of NIL for Caleb Williams at USC. But at the end of the day, the family said, listen, we are going to go to the school that is best going to prepare our son for the next level. I think they looked around. I think they took their time. In some ways, it kind of reminds me, if you guys and girls remember last summer in the college basketball transfer portal, Kofi Coburn enters the portal ends up ultimately returning to Illinois. I didn't blame Kofi Coburn for looking around at the time. I did not blame him for considering all his options, and I don't, I don't blame Caleb Williams for considering all his options either, but ultimately, without knowing the family, without knowing, I, I do think that he made the right decision in terms of going to USC and why it was, in fact, USC at all. And what I will say is, we all know, but I don't think it can be understated enough. USC got an absolutely incredible player on Tuesday morning. And I think this is an important part, right? Because I do think over the last month that we have spent so much time breaking down this recruitment, talking about NIL. What is this really about? Are they going to the highest bidder? Does the family really care? Are they doing it for attention? All this good stuff that what we do tend to forget, this kid when he was on the field is absolutely incredible and was absolutely worth the wait for Lincoln Riley at USC. Uh, I do think because of the way the season ended for Oklahoma, because of the way that Lincoln Riley left under uh, basically the cloak of darkness right after the Bedlam game, because of everything that has happened since the season, both with Oklahoma, with Lincoln Riley, with Caleb Williams, that we forget how good Caleb Williams was. He was awesome. 1,900 yards passing, 21 touchdowns, and basically half a season played in college football. Beyond that, what I would add is he played a lot of the season not healthy, but this is the stat line for Caleb Williams when he was fully healthy at Oklahoma in games that he played in. Obviously, the first couple games of the season, he was a backup. Then he takes over for Spencer Rattler in, in the, in the uh, Red River shootout. How about this? 212 yards passing, two touchdowns in a win over Texas. That sounds pretty good. Uh, but then the following weeks, he gets named the starter. He's officially the starter. 18 of 23 passing, 295 yards, four touchdowns against TCU. 19, 23 of 30 passing, 402 yards, six touchdown passes 
against Texas Tech. There was a Kansas game where Kansas really tried to slow down the tempo, but basically the two games that he played where he was fully healthy, the starter played the entire game, 295 yards passing, four touchdowns, 200 or 402 yards passing, six touchdowns, and then, oh, by the way, in the bowl game when he got healthy again, 21 of 27, 242 yards, and three touchdowns passing. And so I think that's an important thing to note in this Caleb Williams recruitment as well, is that because of all the drama, because of all the rumors, because of all the innuendo, because of all the leaks, I think we tend to forget how good this kid was. This kid was the number one high school quarterback in America in 2021 until Quinn Ewers reclassified, and he looked every bit the part when he stepped on the field, and that's why this is such a big story. That's why I've continued to cover it, and that's why I now want to push ahead and talk about just how big this is for the entire sport of college football as well as the Pac-12 and USC because I don't think you can understate how big this is for the entire sport of college football, right? We talk about in the NFL, in the NFL, we talk about if you don't have one of those dudes, if you don't have Aaron Rodgers, if you don't have Tom Brady, if you don't have Patrick Mahomes, if you don't have Josh Allen, you don't have a chance. Well, at the college level, Caleb Williams coming to USC all of a sudden changes the entire narrative of what USC is and what they could be. Not saying they're making the playoff next year. Not saying they're making the playoff next year. But you talk about the foundation that can be built thanks to Caleb Williams being in town. I don't think you can put a, a, a I don't think we can oversell it, right? I think sometimes us in the media, we overhype, we oversell things. I don't think you can oversell the significance of Caleb Williams coming to USC. First of all, for USC. This is huge. This is huge because this is a program. This is one of those programs. There's about six or seven of them in college football. This is one of those programs that when it's operating at the highest level, like Alabama is now, like Ohio State is now, like Clemson is now, like, uh, I don't know, LSU has in the past, like Florida has in the past, like Georgia is right now. When USC is operating at its absolute peak level, it is a program that can compete for national championships every year, and there's not very many programs that can say that. I mean, think about Michigan. We're going to talk about Jim Harbaugh in a second. As I record here, he is still officially the head coach of Michigan. That may change. Think about all the breaks that Michigan had to get to get themselves into the playoff this year. Ohio State's down. This happens. That happens. This break happens. That break happens. Notre Dame, great school, great football program. But at the absolute highest level, are they competing and winning national championships? They're really not. There's step, and there's nothing wrong with Notre Dame. I bring it up because USC is one of those programs. USC is one of those programs that when it is operating at the highest level, it can compete and it can put a team on the field that can compete with anybody in college football. And it's been a long time since we've seen that. And Lincoln Riley coming and the building blocks that are now in place, Caleb Williams makes this program relevant again. I would say beyond just the, the, the importance for the school and for this and for that, I talked about it earlier, and I actually talked about it earlier this week when the Rams made the Super Bowl, but I don't think you can express enough how important this is for USC as a football program overall. When Clay Helen was fired, I discussed this, but living in LA, seeing the LA sports scene grow over the last decade, USC, I thought, was really in a precarious situation right now, this second, as it pertained to their football future when they fired Clay Helen. I said, look, you can't bring in 
a B minus hire. You can't bring in a Matt Campbell. You can't bring in um, a, a guy that isn't going to rejuvenate and re-excite the fan base. And to its credit, I thought I don't th- I didn't think USC absolutely nailed this hire with Lincoln Riley. And obviously, the trickle down effect is now having Caleb Williams because I'm telling you, if USC had hired Matt Campbell or USC had hired one of these second or third tier guys. I truly believe that there was a chance that USC football was never the same on the national scale that it was a decade ago with Pete Carroll. I talk about it all the time, but when Pete Carroll was in town, never forget, there was no NFL in L.A. The Lakers were kind of going through this weird thing. It was post Shaq and Kobe. They were good, but they weren't great. And USC ran this town, but LA is a completely different town now that uh, you know that 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 USC is competing in. And if they didn't get this hire right, if they didn't do what they needed to do to put this program back in its place at the highest level, this was a program that I truly believe could have become irrelevant going not irrelevant but relatively irrelevant and never reached that level. Well, now they got Lincoln Riley, now they got Caleb Williams, and I truly believe that this is a program that in time can compete at the highest levels. Speaking of which, speaking of which, the Pac-12. I cannot express how big this is for the Pac-12 as well. And you know why. It's because the Pac-12 has stunk over the last five, six, seven years. I use this stat all the time. But the Pac-12 in its history has won one college football playoff game. You know which game that was? That was the first game ever of the college football playoff when Oregon beat Florida State in the first game ever of the college football playoff. And the Pac-12 hasn't won a a college football playoff game since. And the biggest reason, you can go to a lot of different reasons. Oregon's been on the brink. Washington made the playoff one time. But the biggest reason that the Pac-12 has struggled is because their best program has not been operating at the highest level. I say it all the time. But think about the Big Ten. If Ohio State was going 5-7 and seven or 7-5 seven and five or 8-4 and four every year, the Big Ten just wouldn't feel as relevant on a national scale. Don't even get me started on what the ACC would look like if Clemson stunk. But that has been the, the Pac-12's biggest problem. The Pac-12's biggest problem has been that their biggest, best brand that can operate at the highest level, as I just said, has really, really struggled over the last couple years. And now... Caleb Williams with Lincoln Riley rejuvenates this conference in a way that, again, I don't believe that USC is going to be a, a, a playoff contender next season, but it shouldn't be all that long, and it's so important at this moment in time for the Pac-12 because for all intents and purposes, it does not feel as though we are expanding this playoff anytime soon. We've talked about it in previous weeks. We've heard the meetings. We've heard the conversations. It doesn't feel like it is on the forefront of things for people who run this sport. And so because of it, this is the world that we're going to live in. And guess what? Ohio State ain't slowing down. Alabama ain't slowing down. Georgia ain't slowing down. Oklahoma might not be slowing down for the next few years that they're in the Big 12. Clemson, I think we all expect to bounce back. And Clemson's quote-unquote awful year finished with a 10-3 overall record. And so at some point for the Pac-12 to get back into that national conversation, they are going to need a program to elevate itself and I do think USC is going to be that team over the next three, four, five years. And, I, and that's not like a, a hot take or an original opinion. I think most people feel that way. But it all starts on Tuesday with the addition of Caleb Williams in addition, of course, to Lincoln Riley. Finally, I think it's important for college football, man. College football, and we, t- we talk about this all year, all offseason, all regular season, all whatever. College football, I hate to say it because I love the sport, is increasingly becoming a regional sport. A lot of important games in the SEC. 
A lot of important games involving Clemson. A lot of important games involving Ohio State. A lot of important games involving Oklahoma. But once you get past that, there's not all that much going on. And so I'm not going to get into the ratings because the ratings are actually pretty good. But at the end of the day, college football will only be at its best when every region of the country or virtually every region of the country is invested in the sport as a whole. Guess what? The Southeast is always going to care. The Midwest, thankfully, we have Ohio State and emerging Notre Dame, maybe Michigan, who knows? The Southwest, we got, uh, we got Oklahoma for the time being. But that West Coast, we need that West Coast for the health and overall good of college football. And so, yes, Caleb Williams doesn't solve all those problems. No, I don't believe that USC is going to be in the playoff picture next year. They still have a lot of work to do along the defensive line. They have a lot of work to do around the offensive line. But I'll tell you this, they are a lot closer over the last couple months. You bring in Lincoln Riley, he's crushed the transfer portal. He brought in Travis Dye from Oregon. He brought in a bunch of other guys, specifically at the skill positions. But now you got that missing piece. You got that guy that other great players want to play with in Caleb Williams. And I'll mention this too. Keep in mind, unless these transfer portal rules get tightened, unless we get some sort of window uh, with transfers and when you can leave and when you can't, there's going to be another wave of guys that leave after spring practice. And I truly believe that USC will be a benefactor of it. We're already seeing the trickle-down effects in the 2023 and 2024 recruiting classes. USC, as I record here, has the number one recruiting class in 2023. So this has been a great month or so, six weeks since Lincoln Riley took over as the USC head coach. But beyond that, Tuesday was a great day for USC. It was a great day for the Pac-12. And it was a great day for college football as Caleb Williams is officially a USC Trojan. You know what isn't going great right now? Have you been following this Jim Harbaugh story at Michigan? Just absolute insanity as Jim Harbaugh, about five, five and a half weeks after not only the season ends, but five, five and a half weeks after the first reports, the first rumors that Jim Harbaugh was interested in potentially returning to the NFL. Five weeks after, they're still going on, and the latest is this. As I record here on Wednesday, Jim Harbaugh is flying to, Mich- uh, flying to Minnesota to meet with the Minnesota Vikings. Doesn't mean that he'll accept the job. Doesn't mean that they'll even offer him the job. But five weeks after the college football playoff, Jim Harbaugh's seminal moment at Michigan, he does what he claimed he came back to do, compete for national championships, win the Big Ten, beat Ohio State, when his approval rating was never higher. This, this thing with the NFL has gone on for five weeks. And so what I would say is a couple things. One, as I record here, Nothing is official yet. Jim Harbaugh hasn't been offered the job. Jim Harbaugh hasn't accepted the job. Nothing like that. Two, what I would also say is that if something does happen in the next day, two, three, we will obviously address it in the bigger picture, um, you know, on a future show. So if Jim Harbaugh accepts the job, we'll talk about his legacy, Michigan, what does it mean? Can he win in the NFL? All that good stuff. If he does not accept the job, we'll talk about coming back to Michigan, what it means. Is he going to retire there? All that good stuff. Right now, all we know is that he is flying to Minnesota to meet with the Vikings. But what I do believe seems to be pretty clear to me is two things as it pertains to Jim Harbaugh and and the NFL. One, it seems like for all intents and purposes, if he has an opportunity to take an NFL job, he is going to do it. Or at the very least, this is the longest. It's one of two things. Either he really wants to go back to the NFL or this is the the, the longest, most drawn out leverage play in the history of negotiations. And two... I do think that he's burned a lot of bridges in Michigan. So let's talk about it a little bit because I I do think if you look at this all in totality, 
if you take all of the facts that we know, like I said a second ago, it's one of two things. He either really wants to go to the NFL or he really wants to just stick it to Michigan and really like shove their nose in the dirt here. Because think about everything that has happened since the season ended and since the first report came out. And think about, uh, you know, again, what I always talk about on this show, the story behind the story, the details that you need to know, the important stuff that contextualizes this story. And I think with the Harbaugh stuff, it's absolutely fascinating. Because think about what I told you the day after these, these first reports came out. Reports come out, there's interest from the NFL, specifically the Chicago Bears, specifically the Las Vegas Raiders. What did I tell you at the time? I said, never forget, Jim Harbaugh does not have an agent, okay? And that is important in this conversation. Jim Harbaugh does not have an agent because usually when something like this comes out, it comes out from an agent, right? It comes out from somebody that wants more money at a place that they're at. They want a new contract. They want this. They want new facilities. They want that. They want whatever. But here's the thing. Jim Harbaugh does not have an agent, okay? And I know that because about two years ago, there were other NFL rumors. Some NFL reporter says, according to Jim Harbaugh's representatives, and he had to put out a statement in the middle of recruiting season saying, I have no representatives. Anything that you hear about my job status comes directly from me. And so that's important as it pertains to this, because if there are rumors out that he is interested in the NFL, if there, is, if there are rumors out that he is considering leaving, he basically told you two years ago they're going to come directly from him. I also think it's worth noting that this could very much be, a, it's either he really wants to get to the NFL or it could be a leverage play. And you know why? Because think about what happened after that first report. Who were the two teams that were linked to Jim Harbaugh after the first report? First report was the Las Vegas Raiders were interested and the Chicago Bears were interested. Well, what has happened since then, guys and girls? You're smart. You read the papers. We don't have papers anymore, but you read the internet. Las Vegas Raiders never interviewed Jim Harbaugh. Chicago Bears never interviewed Jim Harbaugh. So either great reporters got all this stuff wrong or they were fed totally bogus information, probably directly from Jim Harbaugh. And so now that he's going to meet with the Minnesota Vikings, it leads me to one of two conclusions. One, either he really wants to go to the NFL and he's going to take any opportunity that he can get. Or two, this is a continued leverage play to try to shove it, as I said, down the throats of Michigan and Michigan and their fans. Now, the question becomes, why would he be trying to leverage Michigan? Well, I do think if that is the case, and I do think it's probably more likely that he just wants to go to the NFL, but if it is the, if it is the case, then what I do think is probably the truth with Harbaugh is that he's probably upset about last season, two seasons ago, 2020, COVID, finished two and four. And what happened after that 2020 season? And this is all my speculation. I'm just speculating, but I'm trying to put the puzzle, puzzle pieces together here, excuse me, trying to figure out what's going on. But he goes two and four. He's one of the highest paid coaches in, in college football. He takes a massive, massive, massive pay cut. The fan base wants him gone. The fan base is upset even when they're having success throughout this past season where they make a college football playoff. It wasn't until Ohio State that everybody started to believe in him. I mean, he lose to Michigan State in the middle of October, late October. You beat all these bad teams, and everybody says, oh, doesn't matter, can't beat Ohio State, don't care. Then he beats Ohio State, and he's the, 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 the conquering hero. Everybody loves him, all that good stuff. Well, again, he either wants to go to the NFL, or he just is really, really mad at Michigan, and he is really, really drawing it out. But I do think this goes to the second point that I made to lead the segment, which is at some point, people are going to start to get pissed, and my understanding is people are starting to lose their patience at Michigan. Now, it's not to say that they won't take him back if he wants to come back, but my understanding is that, first of all, never forget what I just said a minute ago. 
Yes, the fans, I don't think they were fully bought in until he beat Ohio State. But at the same time, once they did beat Ohio State, that guy's approval rating was about as high as it could possibly be. Beats Ohio State, wins the Big Ten, goes to the college football playoff, took a pay cut, took the money that he earned this year in incentives and gave it back to the athletic department. That guy's approval rating was about as high as it could possibly be. I don't think it's that high anymore, especially after everything that's happened over the last few weeks. And then my other understanding is this, is that he actually has a contract on his desk that basically uh, is, is, is a restructured contract. Two, three weeks ago, I was told that it was more of an incentive-based and, uh, you know, whatever. It was, it was better money, but it was still very incentive-based. Now I hear the base pay is, I don't want to say it's Mel Tucker money. I don't want to say it's Brian Kelly money. But it's a tier below that. We're talking a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And I don't think Jim Harbaugh really cares about being the highest paid coach in college football or the highest paid coach in the Big Ten. I just think he wants to be, in his view, treated with respect that the respect that he deserves and get a comparable salary to the best coaches, which my understanding is that contract has been available to him and he just hasn't signed it. So this is going to be an interesting thing to monitor. And I do think it'll be interesting to see over the next 24 to 36 hours if anything definitive comes out of this. On the one hand, I don't think the Minnesota Vikings fly him to Minnesota if they are not at least interested in him as the next head coach. But I also don't think it's a foregone conclusion because if you look at the hiring cycle the last couple years, but even this year again, what is the hiring in the NFL looking like? Young and offensive coaches. We have two Super Bowl coaches that are both under the age of 40, both with an offensive background. And so I bring it up because that's kind of what I've been told from behind the scenes is that like this Harbaugh to Minnesota thing is far from a slam dunk because he doesn't fit the, the profile of how everybody is hiring in the NFL right now, which is young and offensive minded head coaches. Harbaugh's 58 years old. He's going to be 59 next NFL season. Is that the guy you want to bring in in this modern era of the NFL with the Sean McVay's, with the Matt LaFleur's, with the Zach Taylor's, young, dynamic, relates to players? There's a lot of things that Harbaugh's good at. I don't know that relating to players is one of them. Two, I also think there's an interesting conversation to be had about what Michigan would do if Harbaugh leaves. And we could talk about that more if it ever becomes official. But I do think that there is a scenario where uh, he does leave. And I do think it leaves Michigan in the lurch because it's the middle of February. And what are you going to do if he does, in fact, leave? Uh, two obvious things that I think could happen. One, I think they could just promote Josh Gaddis from within. Josh Gaddis was the Broyles Award winner as the top as the top assistant coach in college football this past season the offensive coordinator I think that's a possibility I also think it's a possibility the name that keeps getting floated around is Matt Rule Matt Rule Northeast guy uh, played at Penn State coached with the New York Giants coached at Temple yes he went to Baylor yes he's with the Carolina Panthers now but Matt Rule you know if he comes back to college that would be a spot that would be intriguing to him and obviously he's going into year three in Carolina and that is a struggling organization so again we will continue to monitor this whole situation and obviously if Harbaugh if, if a decision gets made one way or the other if he accepts if they if they offer the job then we'll continue to cover it but this is a wild, wild, wild situation, and we will see if we get any sort of closure here over the next day or so. Really quickly, I do want to just wrap this segment. We're going to get to Danny Werfel in a minute. But I do want to wrap this segment with one, uh, one last football topic, and it's a big one. Our buddy Tom Brady retired. And so it's really interesting because, you know, we're now five days removed from the initial report from Adam Schefter. We're, heck, we're two weeks removed from the first report the day of the Rams game that Tom Brady was considering retiring. And so I don't really know that there's all that much for me to say. And, and, and 
I, I say it all the time, but when I come on this show, I want to be unique and interesting and dynamic and make you think in a way that you've never thought before. But what is there really to say about the greatest quarterback in the history of the sport, the greatest player in the history of the NFL, probably the greatest player in the history of team sports, right up in that conversation with Michael Jordan, whoever, announcing his retirement? One, I'm just sad. I mean, I, I, I'm, I think I'm like a lot of you. I thought this guy was going to play forever. His stated goal was to play till he was 45. He played at an MVP caliber level this past season at 44. And so there was no real reason to think that he was going to step away. What I would also say is that once the reports first started coming out, I kind of started to wonder, is it his family? Is it his wife? Is it this? Is it that? I kind of think he, I, I, the more that I kind of peeled back the layers and thought about it, this kind of feels like it's his decision, right? And I think there's some times in life where you just reach a point where you've accomplished everything that you can accomplish in any given thing, any given walk of life, and it's time to move on. You know, the end of high school, you're excited, you love, your, you're going to miss your friends, but you're ready to move on to the next chapter. College, a job, whatever. And that's what it felt like with Tom Brady. And I think when I reflected back on it, it did kind of make sense that maybe this is his call just to step away. I mean, think about it. Guy played 20 years in New England. Won six Super Bowls in New England. Established himself as the greatest quarterback of all time. Then New England doubts that he's really good enough to keep winning at a high level, and they decide to move on from him. He goes to Tampa Bay, and in year one, wins a Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. So anybody that thought it was a Patriots thing, anyone that thought it was a Belichick thing, that was over. Won six Super Bowls in New England, went to Tampa, proved he could do it on his own, and I think that just the idea of going through the process again what was there left for him to accomplish if he decided to come back? And so I just think he looked in the mirror and he said, I've done everything I want to do in this sport. I've accomplished everything. I've set every record. I've won every game. I did it in two places. Nobody can say it was Belichick. Nobody can say it was the Patriots. Nobody can say it was Robert Kraft. I proved everybody wrong. I did it. I accomplished everything I want to. And then if he comes back at 45, it starts to become a conversation of, is this a retirement tour, which we know he didn't want, and more importantly, um, you know, is he going to play beyond 45? And then every year at that point, it becomes a retirement tour as well. So I was definitely surprised when all this came out over the last couple of days. But I do think the more that I have thought about it, the more that I have looked into it, the more that I realize that this was probably Tom's decision and that it was probably the right time for him to get out. Uh, if you guys or girls have anything you want to contribute to the Tom Brady conversation, feel free to always email me, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions, gmail.com, DM me. Um, I, don't, I, I, just, I don't think there's a ton more for me to add. I just think it was time. I think he was ready to move on. And uh, I wish him luck in retirement. I wish him luck in retirement. Greatest quarterback of all time. Greatest player in NFL history. All right, that's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. Danny Werfel. Danny freaking Werfel. Danny Werfel. Former Heisman Trophy quarterback will join us. Really fun interview with Danny Werfel. The Danny Werfel Award uh, was just presented a few weeks ago. And I thought it'd be fun to have him on, talk a little bit about the award. And then we have a fun conversation about Steve Spurrier, about the fun and gun days, about his college era. Does he like the college football playoff? Does he not like the college football playoff? We talk a little bit about Georgia because he was actually in an interesting scenario when he won a national championship at, at Florida that basically... Um, that basically they lost to Florida State early in the season and then came back and got revenge no different than Georgia this year. So really fun interview with Danny Werfel coming up. All right, joining me via Zoom. Very excited for this guest. He is 
frankly, I, I don't know. I don't want to embarrass you, but a college football icon. I mean, Danny Werfel, former Florida Gator. We're here to talk about the Werfel Award. We're here to talk about your career, the Florida Gators. Um, you're not embarrassed by me call, calling you a college football icon. I mean, I'll tell you, I grew up. I, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm getting older now. But my first few years as a college football fan was Florida, Fun and Gun, Danny Werfel, Peyton Manning, Tennessee. Um, so I hope you don't mind, I guess, is the, is the uh, way I want to introduce you, Danny. How are you doing today? I appreciate it. I'll take all the compliments you got. I uh, sure appreciate it. Those were some really fun years in the 90s, some, some great iconic players and coaches. And uh, it's fun to, fun to relive those memories. So thanks for having me on. Well, we are going to relive those memories in a minute, but obviously the uh, Werfel Award was just handed out, you know, a month or so ago with the College Football Awards. Uh, Isaiah Sanders from Stanford won it, but but I would love the background on the award, um, you know, what, how it came to be, why it's important to you, your legacy, all of those kinds of things. Well, there was a group of guys in Florida about 17 or so years ago that said, hey, we, we'd love to start a college award with your name. And my my first thought really, Aaron, was that, uh, you know, there's plenty of college awards. We don't need another one. But they said, no, this one's a little bit different. This is for community service. It's a kind of a character award for what you do off the field. And it piqued my interest. And it was really the, uh, the executive director emeritus who had unfortunately just passed this year of the Heisman Trophy, Rudy Riska, who really said to me, Danny, uh, this would be a great award to add to college football. And that was one of the voices that convinced me to get in, involved. And I am so glad I did. You know, one of my personal missions in life, Aaron, is to inspire service and unity in the world. And this is, uh, this is a way of highlighting incredible work, but not just the winner, but we had almost 100 nominees from all over the country this year. And they're doing great work. And you know, as you know, usually it's the big schools, the best players and people that make bad decisions that, that sort of uh, get the news. So this is a way to shine the spotlight on people doing great things. Uh, and this year, uh, Isaiah Sanders was an incredible uh, award winner, uh, along with the other finalists and semifinalists and all the nominees for that matter. I'm asking, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, unfortunately, one, it's great when a great team, a great program, a great coach is is acknowledged but I also think and, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody I'm in the media is that we do focus on a lot of the negative we do focus on what's wrong with the transfer portal what about and how how is it important to you that we acknowledge not only great players but really that there are a lot of great you know humanitarians in college football there are a lot of great things about college sports that again maybe they don't make as many headlines as they should but like you said, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's one of the, the dozens of other nominees that was, you know, worthy of this award, how important to you is it that we acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of great things that go on in these college communities across the country? Well, it's just, you know, the world we live in, the way it works, um, you know, is the, the things that are, are more negative tend to get more attention. Uh, and, you know, when, you, when you're in the media business, you kind of have to, to focus on what gets attention. That's, that's how you make your living. So it's just sort of a natural gra gravity, you know, gravitate towards those things. But, you know, like anything, you know, I, I remember watching Dan Marino and Joe Montana as a kid and thought, man, I want to be like that. And so I think when you can uh, take that same example off the field, and you can really uh, pump up and, and highlight the good work that Isaiah Sanders or Nicobe Dean 
uh, you know, or Patrick Fields, our three finalists, you know, not just what they did on the field, but off the field. There's lots of other people that can be inspired by that and think, you know, hey, maybe I can do a little bit more. And all those things, the little things add up for sure. Tell us a little bit about um, Isaiah, some of the other finalists and, and some of the work that they've done to be a worthy uh, candidate or a worthy winner of this award. Yeah, well, I'll start with the, the, the finalists, you know, Patrick Fields from Oklahoma, uh, an incredible story, so many different things he did. But uh, during the sort of the, the, the summer and follow up of the, the George Floyd protests and with some of the, the racial conversations going on, he was able to be a phenomenal leader for his team. And they actually did. It wasn't very public, but they took the entire team and he hosted them to his hometown of Tulsa, uh, which has a very, uh, very uh, big history. There's a Tulsa race massacre um, and a lot of people don't know a lot of the history there. So he was able to really uh, help in that way, in a positive way. So doing great things. You know, Nicobe Dean, you know, a national champion football player now, arguably one of the best linebackers out there. But uh from where he grew up to what he's doing now, working in particular with the Boys and Girls Club and, and helping back home, phenomenal stuff. And then, as you mentioned, our winner this year, Isaiah Sanders. So he he did his uh, undergrad, as his kind of most of his career at uh, the Air Force Academy. Uh, and then he transferred or after he graduated, he, he did another couple of years at Stanford. Um, and just <clears throat> unbelievable, uh, if we started to kind of go through everything, we'd be here forever. But, you know, he led the community uh, work at the Air Force Academy as a representative. They helped build playgrounds for neighborhoods. He led several different groups on campus uh, and then also helped with uh, a group called Undivided to help communities really work together. And then he moved to Arizona and started an adopt a cardinal program where different position groups could work with different kids as well. So just doing fantastic stuff. And obviously, as an Air Force grad, he's now uh, enlisted in the Air Force and just uh, serving, uh, serving our country as well. Yeah, well, it goes without saying, I think we all appreciate Isaiah's service and smart guy to, 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 to use an extra couple of years of football to, to get a Stanford education as well. Yeah. So yeah, I want to talk, so I want to talk a little bit about your career uh, outside of just this award. Uh, first of all, I saw one of your former award winners is now on staff at your alma mater. Is that accurate? Yeah, Ty Darlington, uh, center from Oklahoma, who's been coaching at Oklahoma for the last several years. In fact, at one stint, I think uh, the, the three quarterbacks that he worked with, uh, two of them won the Heisman and one of them was a finalist sure. there in Oklahoma. So he's got quite a resume and I think he's a phenomenal up and coming coach. And, uh, and, and I think Napier did a great job to grab him. I was going to ask, have you had a chance to, to speak with Coach Napier? I mean, he's been a very busy man since he accepted the job, but a lot of hires putting together a big staff. I mean, at his introductory press conference, he said, we're going to have an army of people working for us. And uh, it seems like every time I look up there, there's a new press release about a, a new position coach or a new quality control guy like Ty. Um, have you had a chance to meet with him? And how excited are you to see kind of what the stamp that he puts on uh, Florida football going forward? I've uh, visited with him a couple of times on the phone and I've been very impressed both in talking to him and, and watching the moves he's made, the press conferences. You know, I think the, the, the day and age of, of just sort of being a great football coach and hiring a good football staff, uh, th that day, you know, it's really passed. It's really about building, as he says, an army. You look at the, the programs that have really done that well. You're talking about 
you know, the Alabama, the Georgia, the Clemson, and, and, and I think he's been around those models. So it's really kind of a CEO approach. I mean, he really is, at the end of the day, he's a tremendous football coach, but he's also embraced this role uh, of building a team and really having a process for the whole year. It's not just like we get ready, you know, we have strength and conditioning and then we have football season. I mean, there's very specific goals for everybody in the building for every you know, week that they're living in throughout the year. I just think that's a really smart way to do it. I'm real, really uh, excited about that process, what he's doing. And of course, we'll see if it translates over time into, into more wins on the field. Let's talk a little bit about the guy that you played for, uh, you know, process oriented, but in a different way, the process was put up a bunch of points and have some fun. Uh, what was it like playing for Coach Spurrier during that time? Because I think some of our younger listeners may remember him from the South Carolina days, that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I, I look back to that time and, and one of the most creative offensive minds in football history, um, but then the personality too. And, and I was trying to rack my brain before we started here of if there's anybody quite like him in college football in 2021, 2022, what, what, what year we're in now, I don't know that there is. Uh, what was it like? Uh, what was it like working behind the scenes with him as, as you, you and him both made some you know incredible you know memories and memories for not only yourself but Florida fans what was it like during that era yeah well um incredible memories uh, we kind of hit it on at the beginning and um you know when I was little one of the things that I, I loved doing was going in the backyard and throwing the ball you know a long ways and having a receiver run and to catch it without having to stop running like that was really fun of course and that's really what what we did like Everything was about uh, completing it down the field. In fact, I told somebody yesterday, you know, you could complete a seven-yard pass. You know, let's say it's, it's third and five, and you completed a seven-yard pass for first down. If there was a 22-yard pass that you could have hit, you were probably in trouble. You always <laughs> read downfield to short, and if you had the shot downfield, <clears throat> you always took it. Uh, I think he was an incredible balance of intense preciseness with – flexibility uh and take a while to unpack that but he was very flexible it could make adjustments he was very open to changing things to, to win uh but also was incredibly incredibly focused on the details sometimes that's very frustrating because you feel when you're playing for a coach like that like you know in practice you couldn't do anything right because no matter what you did there was something that you were getting uh critiqued on and so i, I think it wasn't always easy um but so many great stories. One of my favorites is early on in my career, Aaron, I threw an interception and I kind of felt like the receiver didn't run the right route or at least didn't run it quite correctly. So I was worried if I was going to get in trouble or if the receiver was going to get in trouble. And when we got to the sideline, Spurrier says, oh, Danny, don't worry. It's not your fault. So I, and he goes, it's my fault for putting you in the game. You're out. <laughs> so, uh, very iconic um you know he he always said things that sort of edged our opponents and their fan bases that really kind of dig it in a little bit they didn't like that um he was always really funny um uh, you know but i tell you what a, a very class they're probably uh and most people don't mention this but in the world of trying to follow the rules and, and not cheat for the ncaa rules there probably wasn't a coach that was uh that was more pure to follow the rules and, and not bend the rules. I mean, he, he wanted to win, but he wasn't going to uh, bend the rules to do it. Like, like most programs were at some level. 
Very interesting. Um, you mentioned some of the stuff that he said. I mean, I was just thinking about it. You know, you can't spell citrus without UT, which was a, a little dig uh, back in the day. Was there ever anything that he said that, you know, you either had to answer for or you saw it in the newspaper the day after and you're just like, I can't believe that man just said that or now I'm going to have to answer for that or anything like that? Oh, man. Well, it was funny. I saw on somebody's uh, coffee table, they had a book of quotes from Steve Spurrier. Oh, wow. And it was this incredible book with all these quotes. And it was from his coaching time up until like 93. It like didn't even oh. get the rest of the times. And uh, he was a little more brazen, probably the younger that he was. Uh, but no, he had some he had some good ones. I remember when Florida State hit me late several times. He, uh, he said, yeah, he goes, Danny's like a, a New Testament guy. He's going to turn the other cheek. He says, but I'm an Old Testament guy, you know, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So we're coming after you. So he, he had some good ones. You know, you mentioned the Florida State thing. You know, you obviously win the national championship. I was, again, it's just making me relive, you know, my, my fandom of, of college football. But are you amazed, you know, Florida's had recent success, but you lose to Nebraska in the national championship game the year before. Um, Nebraska was another one that was as good as anybody, uh, you know, of that era, you know, I mean, just from a distance, I mean, one memories of that game. And, and I know we only got a few more minutes here with you, but, but two, it's just, it, it shows you how crazy college football is where Nebraska, Tennessee schools like that were on top of the sport. They're all struggling now, not asking you how or why or anything like that. But I mean, that was as dominant of a program. And actually, let me ask you that, you know, this was before the playoff, but how was it, as a player, when you know you're really good, are you watching Nebraska from a distance saying, how would we match up with them? Or is it kind of just a, a week by week thing? I'm just kind of curious about that because it was such a different world back then, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you really, you, you had to focus on your game because that's all you could do. And, and since there wasn't a, a playoff situation like that, you kind of follow the other ones. And for us, it was a really weird time because uh, my senior year, um, because when, we lost to Florida State the last game of the regular season. We kind of felt like, you know, there's really no chance to win the title anymore. But uh, there's four or five teams that now were ranked ahead of us going uh, out of the regular season. And fortunately, we beat Alabama. That was one of them. Uh, Nebraska was arguably the, the best team there. But then Texas beat Nebraska. So now there are only two teams left undefeated. One was Arizona State, and they lost to Ohio State. So now there's only one left, and that was Florida State, and we got the, the rematch and beat them. So it was a very weird path for us. I feel very fortunate, um, and, and we, we got that. But, uh, yeah, your, your, your comment about Nebraska was, was correct, man. They, they beat the stew out of us my junior year. We had a really good team that year. Some would say better than the team in the 96 season. And, um, and I think, you know, it was a tough, tough loss for us, but we, I think, learned from it which I think is part of life. You know, you don't, uh, it's not like you might get knocked down or might have things go wrong in life, but when it does, how do you respond? And I think we learned from that Nebraska game uh, that helped us. And then losing to Florida State, I think uh, also recentered us. Uh, my senior year, we added the shotgun for the uh, Sugar Bowl, which was new for us. And I think that was a difference. We learned from our mistakes and we, we got the win. You, um, do you have any thought on as far as the playoff is concerned? I mean, I don't remember, you know, you kind of just laid out how that 96 season came about. 
Do you wish in your era that there had been a more definitive way to crown a champion? Do you wish, do you watch these games now, a semifinal leading into a final? Or do you look back on the old days as like, man, that was the system then, we loved it. And because I think there, there were positives and minuses to both, you know, especially now that people are saying that these non-playoff bowl games are quote unquote meaningless. And I know most players don't feel that way, but from your era, do you, do you wish there had been a playoff? Do you, did, did you like it the way it was? And, and what do you think of kind of the current system? Well, you know, the chips fell in order for us my senior year. So I don't sit around wishing it were different because it worked out, but you know, it could have easily gone a lot of different ways. I mean, we could have been undefeated and not got voted as the national championship had Nebraska gone undefeated and we didn't get to play them. So it definitely needed to be improved. I really was very grateful. You know, life is so much about you can either be frustrated that you're not far enough along in any direction, you know, or you can also appreciate how far you've come. And I think usually both things are true. And in this case, uh, I'm really thankful that there's a 14 playoff. I think it's, it's a great step. It's a great model. It, it, it could eliminate some of the situations, like I just mentioned, where you may have two undefeated teams that don't play. Um, you know, I, I do typically I'm in favor of expanding it, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I think you could get it so much to where the, the regular season doesn't matter as much. Um, you know, typically, I don't know, you, you, you would, uh, to be number one all year and have a couple things go wrong in one extra game, you know, is that fair? How do you structure it and make it work? But I, you know, my guess is they'll, they'll expand it at some point, but I, I don't want to see it get to be too big. I think. Um, so there you have it. Yeah. No, I even have friends at the FCS level and everyone, Oh, the FCS is so great. And he says there's, there's too many teams. It should be a, a few smaller. Last one. I'll let you go. I mean, you just mentioned it, you know, kind of overcoming adversity and bouncing back and, you know, you lose to Florida state, you beat them. Be honest. Uh, Nicobe Dean, you were the one that gave them the pep talk that led to Georgia's national championship after they lost to Bama in the SEC title game, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, no. Uh, uh, it's funny. I, you know, typically I live here in, in Georgia, I'm in Atlanta and uh, uh, have a hard time always being around the Bulldogs. Uh, so not a big <laughs> Bulldog fan, but this time around, I was actually cheering for them. I figured uh, they really deserved it and needed it. And Alabama's had plenty. So uh, I think it turned out just fine. Very good. Danny Werfel, uh, former Heisman Trophy winner, college football icon, and again, the Werfel Award, which went to Isaiah Sanders this year from Stanford. Uh, Danny, where can people find out more about the award? Is there any way they can get involved in, in voting or nominating or anything like that for, for next season? Yep. Well, you can uh, get all the information at warfeltrophy.org is one spot. Uh, you can look me up, dannywerfel.com, and you can see all the different things I'm doing. The trophy is actually part of a uh, foundation called the Warfel Foundation that's doing a lot of other things, including presenting the trophy. And then, of course, uh, my lifelong work has been working in under-resourced neighborhoods through Desire Street Ministries. So uh, dannywerfel.com, you can find links to all those things. And I uh, appreciate you a lot, Aaron. I can correct, congratulations to you, too. You've had, uh, I didn't get a brag on you, but you've had quite a career for, for a young man uh, in this business. So congrats to you as well. Well, thank you. I can't take too much credit because I did pick Georgia to win the national championship in the preseason, and then I bailed on them and picked Alabama the day before the game. So I've been getting ragged on for about two straight weeks for that. So thank you for the kind words. But, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough couple of weeks for me with dogs fans, too. So I understand uh, 
what you're going through. But thank you, Danny. Uh, maybe next time around this time, we'll do it again soon. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about next year's recipients, all that. But thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and we'll speak soon. Thanks, Aaron. Take care, man. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. First of all, thank you, Danny Werfel. Really fun interview with Danny Werfel. Obviously, look, college football legend. If you are of a certain age, Danny Werfel was basically, I, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, four SEC titles, uh, Heisman Trophy winner. I don't want to say he was Tim Tebow or Johnny Manziel, but he was pretty darn close in the 90s. Really fun interview with Danny Werfel. I appreciate his time. And again, you can learn more about the award that he gives out. And he gives that award out every single year. And so I hope to have him on again at this time next year to talk a little bit about uh, some of his uh, charitable endeavors and all that good stuff. But with that said, let's wrap the show with a little college hoops. And it's been a quiet couple days since I last recorded in terms of college hoops content. But there was one big story that I did want to get to because how could I not? And it came on Tuesday night. And it came at 9 p.m. Eastern. And it came in lovely Lubbock, Texas, where Chris Beard, the head coach of the Texas Longhorns, for the first time returned to the school, Texas Tech, that he took to the Final Four in 2019. And boy, oh boy, was it absolute insanity in Lubbock. Did you see the videos of Chris, Chris Beard, Texas, driving up to the arena for shoot-around on Monday night? Did you see the videos of the fans lining up hours before? Thousands upon thousands to get into the arena and boo and scream and yell. Did you see all that? This was one of the greatest environments in all of college basketball that we have had as long as I've been covering it, frankly. Uh, but I also don't want to dismiss what Texas Tech did and not give them credit for picking up the victory to improve to 17-5 and overall. And what I would say is, I don't know that I've talked about Texas Tech on this show, but they are one of the better stories in college basketball this year. Because again, Chris Beard elevates that program over the course of the four or five years that he's there. Takes him to an uh, Elite Eight in 2018. Takes him to a Final Four in 2019 that includes a trip to the National Championship game and a game against Virginia in which they were one defensive stop away from winning the National Championship. I think it's easy to forget now, but they played Virginia in that title game uh, they were up three, last possession of the game, Virginia forces overtime, Virginia ends up winning, and while it's great for Virginia, I mean, Texas Tech was like this close to winning a national championship, but at the end of last season, Shaka Smart leaves for Marquette, and I think he didn't really leave, he kind of got forced out, and Chris Beard decides to go home to his alma mater, and it's one of those weird things where it, it, it's tough, right? I don't blame Chris Beard for leaving, I don't blame Chris Beard for doing what's best for him, I think especially now in this one-time transfer portal era NIL world that we live in. I think we got to stop, we got to get over the fact getting mad at coaches for leaving programs, okay? And that's no disrespect to Texas Tech. It's a great program. It's a great this, it's a great that. But if a player can decide after two bad, two bad weeks of practice or two bad days of practice, I'm bouncing, I'm getting out of here, I don't blame a coach for deciding that he wants to go back to his alma mater. And I really do believe there's only two, three jobs that Chris Beard would have seriously considered Texas, leaving Texas Tech for. And I do believe that Texas was one of them. Chris Beard even said it. I, I saw an interview with him over the summer where he said, look, I as, a, as, a, as an individual, us as a staff, we had a lot of success. And I believe that success allowed me to consider other opportunities. And this was frankly an opportunity that I just didn't think was going to open up. I mean, Shaka Smart won the Big 12 tournament last year. 
Shaka Smart had a three seed in the NCAA tournament last year, so there was no reason for Chris Beard to think that this opportunity was going to present itself, but he decides to leave. But what I think is even cooler is what has happened since. Because guys like me on shows like this sped all offseason talking about everything that Chris Beard was doing in Austin. Talked about the signing of Marcus Carr, the signing of Trey Mitchell, the signing of Dylan Dissu, Christian Bishop, whatever. But here's the bottom line. What Mark Adams, his replacement, was doing at Texas Tech was just as incredible, if not more incredible, as right now Texas Tech sits at 17-5 and and they're in the top 15 nationally in the country. And so what I want to do is take a little bit and talk a little bit instead of focusing on just the Chris Beard element, I think it's important to focus on the Mark Adams element because I think it's really cool. First of all, I know they talked about it on the broadcast. I'm sure if you read any articles about the game, the Mark Adams story is awesome, okay? This guy's a, a, a basketball lifer, coached at a bunch of small schools, got out of coaching altogether, came back into coaching, worked with Beard at Little Rock, you know, at all these places, ends up with him at Texas Tech. And when Chris Beard decided to leave for Texas, he basically looked his staff in the eyes and he said this, Plane is leaving for, an Austin, for, leaving for Austin in an hour. I want whoever wants a job. If you want a job, you better get on the plane with me. And what happens? Mark Adams looked Chris Beard in the eye and says, man, I wish you nothing but the best. I don't know if I can get this job, but I'm not getting on that plane. And Mark Adams basically put his entire career on the line because Chris Beard, once you say no to Chris Beard, he ain't taking you to Texas. Mark Adams put his career on the line not knowing if he was going to get the opportunity at Texas Tech. And what happens? Texas Tech ends up hiring him in large part because a lot of the players that were in the program said the only way we're staying is if Mark Adams is our coach. And so TJ Shannon stays, Kevin McCullough stays, all these guys stay, Clarence Ndoli stays, on and on and on and on and on. And Mark Adams, in his first three months on the job, has been absolutely awesome. Texas Tech is 17-5 overall. Texas Tech has a very impressive resume. Most of their losses are completely justified at Providence, Gonzaga on a neutral court, um, you know, at Iowa State, which is a tough place to win, at Kansas. I mean, you look at their resume, the Kansas game, by the way, in double overtime, and they're 17-5 with a ton of great wins. They beat Baylor on the road. They beat Kansas at home. They, what Mark Adams is doing is absolutely incredible. And so I don't want the Chris Beard stuff to overshadow what Mark Adams has done because they're one of the best stories of college basketball. A program that everybody thought was going to go, it was going to end up being completely irrelevant once Chris Beard left, has a better team right now that is better built to win in 2022 than the Texas Longhorns is. That's no disrespect to Texas, and I'm not saying that Chris Beard still can't have Texas in the tournament this year and at competing at a nationally uh, uh, elite level going forward because he's got a really good recruiting class coming into McDonald's All-Americans. But what I'm just saying is what Mark Adams is doing is absolutely incredible this year. Now, in terms of the bigger picture, I would say a couple other things. One, I do give Chris Beard credit. I thought, you know, listen, Texas Tech fans, if you're listening, you have every right to be mad at Chris Beard. I don't blame you one bit. I think it's 100% normal. I would be mad if my coach left for a rival that had to come play my school on an annual basis as well. I'd be furious if I was you guys. But I also thought Chris Beard has handled the last week or so about as well as he could. Rick Barnes comes back to Austin on Saturday. Chris Beard is nothing but respectful. Chris Beard honors Rick Barnes. Chris Beard says all the right things about Rick Barnes. Um, you know, whatever. Then this past week, Chris Beard just kept saying, you know, everything that I said a minute ago. One, it, it's, it, it's not about me. It's, it was just an opportunity. I couldn't pass up. I gave my heart, sweat, blood, sweat, and tears to this program over the course of the five years that I was here, and I believe that I had the opportunity to, to pursue something else, and I wanted to take that opportunity. 
And so I thought he handled himself well. I thought Texas Tech fans handled themselves as they should. I love Mark Adams, everything about him. But let me also just say this. This rivalry and the bad blood, I think is great for college basketball, right? Because we now live in a world where I do think in college football, the coaches change so quick that it's hard to get these great like, – like Michigan-Ohio State in, in football always matters and Kentucky-Louisville in basketball always matters and all that stuff. But because the coaches flip over, and in basketball specifically because the players flip over, like the real bad blood hatred rivalries, they're just not like they used to be. And so if we could get one like this where Chris Beard leaves his school for another school that he's going to have to play at least a couple more times before they leave for the SEC – I think that's great for the sport. And it's funny because I saw a lot of people talking about this, but there really aren't a lot of comparable examples of a guy like Chris Beard leaving a school for a team in the conference that he's going to have to face for a while. The only other one that comes to mind for me was Tommy Tuberville when he left Ole Miss to go coach at Auburn a million years ago in football. And even Ole Miss is not as big of a rival for Auburn as Tommy Tuberville, or, or as, as Texas Tech is for Texas. And so, uh, you know, not much else to really share about the game. I thought Texas Tech was the better team coming in. I thought they were going to win convincingly. They did win convincingly. Shout out to the Red Raiders. But this was an awesome environment. This was an awesome game in college basketball. Credit to Texas Tech for being ready. Te credit to the fans for creating one of the most iconic atmospheres that we have ever seen in this sport. Uh, and man, I hope Texas stays in the Big 12 for a few years longer so we get a couple more trips by the, the Longhorns to Lubbock. And I'll tell you this, I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, if, even if Chris Beard, uh, you know, I don't think the bad blood's going to stop being bad, uh, even if, even if uh, you know, Texas Tech continues to have success. With that said, I do think it's time for me to get out of here. I think that's it for today's episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Before we get out of here, I do want to remind you of a couple quick things. One, Make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media. I should add, by the way, March Madness is coming up. We are looking for advertisers, advertisers for this podcast, advertisers for the website, everything that I do. You kind of know what the audience is that I reach. You kind of know who I, I, you know, what teams and markets and but I, I have data on all the information I have data I have every piece of data that you need but the bottom line is if you want to advertise if you want to reach a nice big audience across the country uh, especially ones as we get closer to March Madness feel free to reach out uh, you could uh, email me Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com you can DM me on Twitter as well but this show is growing January was a record-setting month. This after December was a record-setting month. And so I can't wait to see what February, March, April, and beyond has in store. If you are interested in advertising, make sure to hit me up, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. With that said, it is time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you guys for listening to the show. Thank you guys for doing what you do. And you know what time it is. Shout-out to Torrent Craig. Shout-out to Rachel Who Hates My Voice. Shout-out to Mark Adams and Chris Beard. We'll be back. Later this week, Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.